Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with an old friend, a gentleman who I've known for roughly a decade, Mr. Chris Abbott. Chris, hello. Good evening, Tom. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Now, Chris and I, to give some background on, on how I know Chris, Chris is the inspiration for Model Rail Radio. I started Model Rail Radio with a couple of poorly narrated monologues, and then Chris and I just started chatting, and it was so addictive, we started getting other people calling in, and it snowballed into this phenomena which has now been going on for nearly 10 years called Model Rail Radio. So Chris and I have many, many, many years worth of audio behind us, but we have never had the luxury of talking about role-playing games. And in particular, I've seen various photos of Chris jamming games. I've seen photos of him standing over players, doing various incantations. But I've never had the opportunity to talk to Chris in a, a laid-back format associated with what he loves about role-playing games. And also, I found out recently through talking to Chris that he's actually published rules and he's had a bunch of different things that he's done over the years associated with role-playing. So I thought it'd be a real luxury to have the chance to chat with Chris this evening. Chris, for folks listening in, could you give an introduction to how you got interested in role-playing games? It was a bit of an accident, really. Uh, back in late September of 1980, I was heading for English class in high school, and uh, I got to the portable because, of course, we were overcrowded. And there was a fellow at the front of the class sitting on his desk with a copy of a pale blue monochrome magazine, as far as I knew, uh, with a dragon on the front of it, staring at me with the title Dungeons and Dragons. And as I had recently finished reading both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and any other fantasy novel I could get a hold of, I asked this fellow uh, what magazine he was reading. He dropped the, the book, looked at me and said, it's not a magazine, it's a game, and put the book back up in front of his face and continued reading. And I found this highly unusual, to say the least, I had no idea there was a game that had anything to do with with uh, dragons. And of course, my experience to that point was strictly board games, risk, diplomacy, monopoly, or monotony, as we like to call it. And um, I pursued this a little further with him and, and got a friend, a mutual friend, who is now a mutual friend of ours, involved. And I said, look, I don't know anything about a game with dragons in it, and I'm keen to find out what you're talking about. So he dragged us up at lunchtime. He said, meet us at this, uh, at this room upstairs, and uh, we're going to play. So I went upstairs expecting to, to see a board and, and uh, a couple of people. And I got in there, and the room was, I won't say packed, but it certainly sounded like it. There was probably eight people in there all trying to get their words in edgewise and uh, tossing dice around. And uh, there was no board that I could recognize. And uh, that was the beginning of it. That started pretty much 15 years of obsession at that point. Uh, I sat down, started creating a character and learning, unlearning. Yeah, that's the better phrase. Unlearning everything I knew about gaming to that point. Uh, I had never seen anything like this. And I was pretty much instantly hooked. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm still good friends with the fella today. Some, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say how many years later it is, but everybody, it's almost 40 years later. Uh, I'm still good friends with the person who dragged me into the games. It's been an amazing journey. Uh, but I, I, I suppose my origin story is no different than any other teenager getting exposed to D&D &D, uh, in, in school. Uh, it was just such a surprise to find something like that existed. Uh, at the tender age of 13, I was, 
I, I suddenly learned that I didn't know anything about much of anything and all the things that I thought were true weren't true anymore. And there were more things in heaven and earth ratio, et cetera, et cetera. And we just went from there. It, it really ballooned. It is interesting, the origin story. I mean, my origin story is probably Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston's fighting fantasy games. I had a childhood friend who was, uh, he broke standardized testing. He was just like a, a genius character. He, you know, when I was about four or five, we were playing with the hose and he said, you know, this is a parabola pointing to the water coming out of the hose. I mean, he really was quite a, a curious character. And um, it's interesting, actually, because I backed a book recently where initially I didn't want, I thought it's going to be too difficult to get to London to meet Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. And then I was talking with my boss about it, maybe three or four. I mean, I worked at Netflix and it was associated actually with Bandersnatch, the content that's recently come out on Netflix. And I said, you know, I'm I this opportunity to meet Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. And I've kind of thought about whether or not I should do it. So I put in the extra, I think it was an extra $400 to go and meet them for lunch. So sometime, I guess, in the next two, three years. Well, I'm going to the UK next month. So hopefully about two years after that, I'll have an opportunity to go back and have, have a lunch with Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. So for me, it was initially through books that weren't quite D&D. And also there was a game called Dra Dragon Warriors, which I think might have been, I remember Dave Morris, there were a few names associated with Dragon Warriors as well. But in parallel to this, there was always D&D. The thing about the other books, the Fighting Fantasy and Dragon Warriors, was that they were actually smaller format books. The D&D books for, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old kid were very large, unwielding things, particularly in book bags. They were quite expensive as well. Certainly Fighting Fantasy and Dragon Warriors were, although they came from the UK and had a sticker price accordingly, they were lower in price. But that was my entry. And then one Christmas, I got the basic D&D &D set. And that was like the beginning of the end, basically. And then I... Which, which uh, the red, The Red Dragon, uh, circa uh, 84, 85. I mean, 84, 85. So the crayon on Mold. the dice, basic, uh, yeah. that came okay. out. I purchased the original basic maybe 10 years ago. And I've never been able to... I probably should look into getting the red box basic again. At the time that I purchased it, I was living in Las Vegas, and one of my co-workers said, oh, I mastered that rule set when they came out in the late 70s. I thought, yeah, well, that's actually interesting. Something I want to touch on, actually, is associated with the role-playing archetypes, because you've already, from your initial introduction, indicated a very strong role-playing archetype. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that in the conversation. You have played a number of different rule systems. You've gone through a series of different rule systems, and it's always fun... I have a co-worker, you know, he played Traveller, he played a bunch of different... It's interesting kind of jamming with him, as like the secret agent game that mm -hmm. TSR came out with. So it's interesting to me the different rule systems that people play, in large part due to friendly exposure and these kind of things. In terms of your, uh, let's say, top 20 rule systems that you've been exposed to, what are your top 20 favourite rule systems? Oh, I don't think I have 20, but uh, let's see. I, I started off that day seeing the the blue book which was the Holmes basic mm. edition and um when i got up to the to the room they were playing uh advanced dungeons and dragons they had the the player's handbook the dmg and the uh, monster manual and i put in oh conservatively 
eight or nine hundred hours on first edition uh, AD and I'm probably forgetting some on there. Uh, it's it's my first love. Uh, it's not my only love, but it's my first love in games. And um, we we moved on, or we we added to that uh, the original classic uh, GDW Traveler uh, Little Black Books and played that extensively. Uh, friends of ours brought in the original Top Secret, uh, which was uh, from TSR, which I wasn't keen on. I thought the rules were really clunky. Uh, compared to what I'd just been exposed to. Uh, we had other friends bringing in the first or second edition of RuneQuest, and we didn't play a lot of that. Mm. Nobody to switch over and buy more more rule books at that point in time. Uh, I can remember first first and second, first, first edition Champions, which was the Hero Games mm-hmm. superhero, which was fantastic. Really enjoyed that. Played a lot of uh, one-on-one with the only other comic guy in the area. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, I've got this superhero game and nobody wants to play. And I said, man, I'll play. Let's let's go. So that was, uh, that was you know, one night a week or, or uh, the odd uh, lunch hour. Oh, we picked up the first uh, Middle Earth role-playing, mm-hmm. which uh, Iron Crown. Yep, I've got that in front of me, actually. It's a favorite and of mine, too. Yeah. I'm, I, I have to say, we were disappointed with it. And I think our expectations were were way out of whack. We either yeah. wanted to play a, yeah. the fellowship, or you know, because we knew what that story was, Certainly. but we didn't know what the other stories were. Yeah, and we had a hard time trying to um, come up with something sensible, uh, engaging, um, uh, you know, that had that had a repeat draw to it because we just we'd we'd sort of soaked our feet in in the D and D mythos, and we were. Mm-hmm. Just sort of out of out of water with uh, Middle Earth. Interesting. And we tried Gamma World, mm-hmm. uh, which not not a fan. I have to say, not a fan of the early Gamma World. It it again, it seemed thrown together to me at the time. Uh, it it lacked the cohesion that the other games did. Hmm. But then we played. We had uh, Ogre and uh, GEV, the Shockwave expansions mm-hmm. for board games. We had Divine Right. Uh, we had, um, uh, as I said. Uh, so, well, diplomacy, supremacy, uh, risk, and nuclear variations of all those. <laughs> well, you have to add nukes into of it. Course. You just yep. do it normally like everyone else does. One of the guys, uh, Ken, had uh, Starfleet Battles, mm-hmm. which was pretty fantastic if you were a trekker of any of any stripe. There was another fellow who had uh, Squad Leader and a bunch of the either uh, Avalon Hill or SSI boxed games. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking. Panzer Blitz was in there. I'm pretty sure we played Panzer Blitz. And I remember the Christmas he got advanced squad leader given to him. And he, he said, oh, look what I got. And he handed me the box. And I just about tore my arms off. It was solid. It was a solid brick of, of boards and, and, and punch counters. Uh, we were lucky. We had a, a, a really tiny uh, hobby shop in the neighborhood uh, run by a terrific lady named Kay. And it was a small selection of games, kind of the, the stacked display of of uh books if we needed something she'd order it in for us and <laughs> since we couldn't really run to buying a whole box of either uh, ral parth or citadel uh figures she would she would open the boxes and we could buy individual figures from the boxes which was really nice of her she mm-hmm. didn't have to do that but uh yeah it, it came down to uh first ed D and d and d sorry uh traveler and about four years later, my family moved, so I had to go to a new high school. 
and I uh, had to pick up a whole new group of people and I stole the ones I liked from the from the high school gaming club basically we were playing uh, we played first edition uh second edition was just coming out mm-hmm. so we had a pile of uh, second edition books at one point in time uh this the second edition of top secret but the special mm-hmm. intelligence that is probably if you're going to talk favorites that's probably number 1 or number 2 it's yeah it it, it ar- argue between that and first edition uh, AD&D and this year I finally got the last piece of published material for that so I have the complete set of everything that was produced for uh special intelligence mm. twilight 2000 mm-hmm. we started into some military one of the guys that we we met in this group was heavy into military stuff uh t2k was really good uh palladium uh kevin Zimbata was producing i wanted to talk to you about that specifically yeah. but yes yeah. yeah he was producing the the his fantasy role-playing game and i picked that up along with a couple of the supplement books which i really i still have them i really enjoy the game mm. Uh, and there was a plethora of, uh, on television and movies at the time, there were there, all these, uh, in the eighties, all these Westerns came out. It was a Renaissance for, for the Western genre and film. And we started playing, I, I swore that we were playing boot hill rules, but everybody I've talked to from that time frame swears that they didn't ever own boot hill. Hmm. So I'm not sure if we just took the conversion rules from the back of the DMG between Boot Hill and and D and D and and filled out whatever else we wanted. Uh, but that was really great. But then Car Wars. Oh yes. And uh, uh, the one my biggest regret is I had the second edition uh, of uh, FASA's BattleTech uh, game of armor combat, and hmm. I actually I sold that about ten years ago, and I'm just kicking myself for getting rid of that. Uh, Ace of Aces. I'm sure you remember mm-hmm. Nova Games Ace of Aces with the uh, the graphic books. And at that point in time, and so we're sort of, sort of mid '80s now. A uh, couple of guys from school. We got together. We decided, you know, we can do. We could do a module. We could do a. We could publish something. We took we took the world that I had been building for myself, which uh, was roughly roughly Earth like in shape and uh, uh, tilt, because I wanted. I was developing a weather system that I could map out for months ahead of time, and I needed I needed to be able to use the weather data from from real Earth to do means by latitude, mean temperatures by latitude, and then I did modifications to that. So I wanted something roughly Earth size, uh, but I didn't want the Earth. So uh, my recollection is I took uh, an elevation map of part of the Moon mm. and filled it with water virtually uh, up to a certain point and then saw what it was like in terms of the the land masses it was creating and i took sort of those land masses and created uh created a planet or a portion of a planet which was where we set this outdoor adventure uh which was in retrospect not the best named for longevity we called it catapult run Mm. because cannonball run was out at the time Mm -hmm. and uh we it was an overland race uh between groups of people uh groups of characters uh, one of which was the the player party, and the rest were NPCs. And we also produced uh, the world's best hexagonal uh, graphing paper, <laughs> which uh, which the distributor we couldn't get it produced fast enough uh, for the likes of the distributor. So the distributor actually started produce basically copied our stuff and started producing it and selling it themselves, mm. which which was a real kick in the pants. Mm. And we were working on. The, I was working on writing up the entire area that I had set aside for my player group, uh, which was the Barrel Vale, Barrel vale area 
of the big map. And I had probably 80, 85% of that completed plus the main city, which was known as Cypher with a Y. Uh, and it had all of the, that was going to be a separate, uh, release because we had all of the, the guild halls and the map street maps and the, um, the organizational structure for the guards and the, the religions and everything was all set out. So we probably had another 400 pages of material to produce and it didn't happen. Mm. <laughs> it didn't happen because the, the fellow with the money ended up having to go to university. It was, he didn't want to, he wanted to continue on with this, but it was made plain that if he didn't go to university, he was going to have to find himself a, a different place to live. Mm. Uh, than his parents' uh, house. At least that's how I recall it. It was a long time ago, and it is a bit blurry right now. So I've, I've left little dot points in the stuff that you said. Sure. I want to return to Middle-Earth, because for me, Middle-Earth as a role-playing game was, as you say, the antithesis of the books. And if you approached it with the view that you were going to you know, play Gandalf or what have you, for me, it was more associated with the richness of en- environments. I have a, another book, which is actually a woman's PhD, looking at the maps of Middle Earth. And I, what fascinates me... Review. Pardon? I saw that on your recent reviews. Yes, yeah. It's actually an old review uh, from, I don't know, maybe eight years ago when I was in Vegas. I, I'm not sure where that book is. It's probably my hat. But the, the scholarship associated with the Lord of the Rings, particularly through the 1960s and early 70s, was really phenomenal, and it's completely different than Tolkien's writing. So I saw the uh, role-playing game, the initial role-playing game at least, as being from that universe of scholarship as opposed to from the actual writing. It's interesting if you track uh. miniatures as well, because there have been at least eight different Tolkien-based miniatures lines that have come out. Obviously, Games Workshop is the most famous based on the films, but mm-hmm. some of the minor ones, some of the Irish you know, renditions are beautiful within their own particular view of Middle-earth. When, prior to films, prior to cartoons and these kind of things, you have people that have an intimacy with the literature and have their own particular projection of what these things should look like. Now, obviously, Tolkien provided some degree of illustrations, but what people have taken from that work, I think, is considerably more interesting, at least for me. And certainly that's what the early, you know, Middle-earth role-playing game is and why it's still on my shelf. RuneQuest for me, actually, strangely, before I started this podcast series, I was contacted 30 years from when I last knew him from a fellow who I knew when I was in my early teens and he was in his early 20s. He now lives in Canada, relatively close to you, actually, Chris. And he just texted me out of the blue. I bumped into his stepmother uh, in Adelaide, South Australia. He picked up or his former stepmother or, you know, some connection. His father was the connection. anyway, And... And she'd picked up my number and passed on my number to him. So I just got a text from him out of the blue. And I had recently found the miniature line. He gave me a, a large ogre miniature, which the fellow in North Carolina is still producing. So I made sure I sent him a replacement to this ogre miniature that he'd given me, you know, 30-odd years ago. So it might actually, he might actually be an interesting participant. I don't know how electronically connected he is. But anyway, his big thing was RuneQuest. And he was an evangelist. I mean, this guy sat me down, he and his friend, and berated me. It was almost like an intervention, like a D&D intervention, like get out of this D&D thing. By this point, I was already writing my own rules. But he said, mm. you just you think of role-playing and D&D constructs. And it was like this 
strange kind of deprogramming experience over three hours where he and his friend took turns of berating me associated with still believing in these D&D constructs because they'd found the one true game and it was RuneQuest. And that was a fascinating experience. But the Kevin Sabita rules have impacted me, I think, out of most of the folk. And Kevin Sabita, thankfully, is very heavily interviewed. I've discovered a number of podcasts that interview Kevin Sabita, particularly uh, while he still had the Robotech rule set. He, he lost mm. that, unfortunately. But he, well, I, I find Sabita fascinating because, as you say, the depth and breadth of his rules from space to ancients to fantasy to strange kind of, you know, early ancient Chinese mysticism, samurais. There's a bunch of, like, he explores mythology and universes in such a degree of depth and real authenticity to the various aspects of it. And his modern rules, particularly associated with modern, you know, firearms, is just amazing, the level of detail uh, that he puts into, you know, even stuff that is, is contemporary. So for his rule set, it was Robotech, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the mm. fantasy stuff, which is so deep. He did a bunch of stuff in Australia, which I, as a boy growing up in Australia, there were no indigenous role-playing games. And the Sabida, I think he does two, he does two series through the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He does, I think, three through his general fantasy rules associated with, you know, a post-apocalyptic Australia and all this other stuff. But then I realized now, looking through particular ABE books, he does that with everywhere. <laughs> it wasn't that Australia was special. He does it with Ireland. He does it with Argentina. He does it with, he's got multiple books on Japan. So Sabida, for me, represents the, the kind of polymath archetype. And also, he's had such a tortured life. <laughs> I mean, his, his life of, of losing it all and gaining it all and losing it all. I mean, he makes Gary Gygax look like a very positive, straightforward kind of character based oh, yeah. on the, the, the experiences that he's had. So, yeah, yeah I, these are the rules that, uh, and as you were talking about them, I thought I need to at least say something. With My view is that Middle Earth is just such an abused intellectual property um, associated with, you know, everything. And, and the, the, I mean, I, I have very interesting feelings associated with Games Workshop, but certainly... They have been the primary abuser for at least the past 15 years, in large part thanks to the films and other things. But I wanted to talk a little bit about when you describe these rules, what are the system dynamics? Like, what are the elements within these rule sets that kind of you gravitate towards? Can you see that there are elements in these rule sets that you like specifically? Well, I'm a huge fan of crunch. Mm. Or at least I was more so probably when I was younger than I am now. But crunch, I love crunch. I like weapon speed factor. Weapon type versus armor class, aging rules, mm. hit locations, wear and tear on your armor. Um, some of these things were not in the basic, sorry, not basic, the, the core AD&D rules. Yes. We had to wait for either Unearthed Arcana or other uh, supplements to come out, or even the second edition, where the uh, player's option for combat and tactics takes on oh, it's a massive tome on just the combat. Uh, you know, and, and I love I love the which it puts me at odds with some of the players that, that I'm with currently because resource management to me is part of the, the game. It's mm. built in, it's baked in to the AD&D rules, ammo, the number of charges in a, in a magic item, scrolls, food, torches. I mean, all that stuff is in there. If you don't have it, you can't do the thing. Mm. While I've had certain 
enthusiastic discussions with people about whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, from my perspective, it's a good idea because it drives your choices. It it You have to think your way around a solution. If you are constantly, oh yeah, you always have enough rations, you always have enough water, you, you never uh, catch a disease, you never succumb to parasitic infection, none of this stuff. Oh yeah, it, it, then it's just, well, you walk into the, the room and you, you kill the occupants and you take their stuff. There's no thought going into the problem solving because there are no problems. Your, your armor never wears out, your weapons never break, you never run out of food. What's the point of doing any, any of it? To me, that's, mm. that's, it's a conceit of mine to, to think that way. I, I love stuff like the combat computer from first edition. I don't know if you remember this <laughs> from like Dragon 72 or 74, somewhere in that range. It was a paper, two paper discs that you had to cut out and cut little windows into them. And then you pinned them together and you rotated them. You set the target armor class and then you picked off what uh, what class you were playing, uh, fighter or magic user or, or thief. And you determined what your to hit roll was. And then through the windows, it would tell you what the the modifier was for the type of weapon you were using versus that armor. I mean, to me, that is a brilliant. I've got one in front of I've got a replica of one right in front of me right now. <laughs> And I still think it's one of the coolest things that they did for first edition. Mm. And it was a third party development, not from TSR. So, uh, and that got a lot of use at the game table. I, I, I guarantee. But, uh, once we, once we stopped in the mid nineties, everybody had either gone to university, gotten better jobs, moved away, gotten girlfriends or gotten engaged. And that was it for our core group. And I thought at that point in time, well, I'm never going to be doing this again. I just packed up everything that I had left and put it into a box and didn't think about it for a long time. I had so many, so many hours, literal, probably years of time. Mm. If you ran it all together and, and summed it all up, it would be years of enjoyment and interaction with people because of RPGs and because of war games and, and strategy games. And had I not uh, taken that dive based on the cover of the Holmes book, I wouldn't be, I certainly wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't know the people, the excellent people that I know today. If I, okay, I'll go back to your question. I'll stop rambling. I'll go back to your question. <laughs> I'm a D20 guy because I started with D20, mm. right? I'm, I'm really that, the, the polyhedrons just caught my attention right away. And I have bags of dice around here. Mm -hmm. Every time a new, you know, impact or, or, uh, uh, Roll for initiative, or or geez, the old ones, Chessex and uh, mm -hmm. uh, game science. If any time something like that came out, I grabbed I grabbed more dice for no real reason. Mm -hmm. I I really liked uh, BRPs, uh, the uh, basic role playing RuneQuest et al. Mm -hmm. I liked the percentile system. I liked the advancement that they had, where you rolled under for you to make a skill check, and if you got so many uh, successes during a session. You could roll over your skill to see if your skill improved. That way, as you progressed, it would become harder and harder to make to to get better skills, mm. right? Because that that gap would narrow at the top end, and you'd have to have a smaller window to to make it better. So that was really cool. And if we had have been introduced to RuneQuest before we were introduced to D and D, we would be talking about Glorantha and those those ducks that I don't understand. I don't understand the ducks. I really don't. <laughs> but Everything else about RuneQuest, I really, I really like, but nobody I played with really played RuneQuest. Mm. The guys, well, one guy in particular owned the rules and bought 
expansions and even bought stuff like uh, Harn before it was a rule set. It was a setting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, you know, he would constantly go after the niche items and we'd all be staring at him saying, but you got to buy the next module for, for D and D man. What do you want your money on that? <laughs> <clears throat> well, yes. we were, you know, we were, um, uh, not sophisticated in our gaming. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that we played, uh, a, a fantasy game, a sci-fi game, and maybe a post-apocalyptic game. That was, we considered ourselves uh, well-read at that point. And that was not true, of course. We didn't know anything at that point. There was so much more out there uh, that, that there was just, even at that point in time, even up to the, the 90s, there was so much more that we didn't know about and didn't pay attention to. The experiences of people based on their friendship group seems to be a defining and interesting, sometimes limiting, sometimes, you know, discovering systems that you never experience. I mean, one of the things I loved early on was the diversity that my friends had in terms of gaming systems. It was only after a certain amount of time that we all kind of, well, I mean, some of us broke off and wrote our own rule systems early on, but mm-hmm. still the discoveries that you made and meeting new people i think that's something that i found as well was meeting new people and discovering the systems that they liked we're moving towards the reawakening i had some other questions for you but if you (laughs) want to touch on the reawakening because you were kind of getting there so time proceeded it was in a box somewhere and i know this because i i i witnessed your renaissance of (laughs) role-playing it removed you from something that I did with you on a regular basis and I was so pleased to understand that you were embracing this thing. I mean, you embraced it earlier than I did in terms of a renaissance. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what has happened over the past seven odd years? Okay. Uh, well, I have to preface it with something. Probably between 15 years ago and 10 years ago, I was I was at a low ebb. I, mm. I was really not uh, the person I wanted to be, I was really down all the time and I couldn't find much, uh, other than our, uh, interest in, in railroading that, that was of any, um, uplift to me. Mm-hmm. And I had assumed incorrectly that I was never going to touch the gaming stuff again. Mm-hmm. So I actually got rid of probably three or four bankers boxes worth of material. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of first edition, stuff including monochrome covered modules which mm-hmm. are now apparently worth a stink load of money all my original books um most of my most of my notes for for my uh my own game world mm. and all of the the adventures that we were doing in them and i sold off a bunch of clean clean stuff like the battletech mm-hmm. box and, and just a pile of games that I hadn't played. Heroes Unlimited from, from Palladium and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Roadhogs mm. and uh, just a, a, a pile of things. I assumed that I was never going to touch this again. It was never going to be of any interest to me. Mm. And I managed not to sell off everything I owned, which has turned out to be a good thing. <laughs> now, the fellow that was hidden behind the, the Holmes Blue Book in 1980 I, we kept in touch through high school, even after I moved. He went on to university. He went off to medical school. He made he made very good for himself. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's one of the smartest people I know and one of the most driven people I know. And he, he did the best game mastering 
back in the day mm. of any of us. He was the the premier uh, member of our group in that in that aspect. And uh, after he'd finished medical school and gone off to intern in various places, I lost contact with him. And then he showed up again in Ontario, and we got in touch, and we started to talk. And over the course of many many years, sort of every few months, we'd say something to one another. And uh, we were talking about games, and he he picked up a couple of game items that were still left in my collection, and said, "You should play." You should play again. I said, no, nah, this is not really for me anymore. It's really not not that it was a kid's pursuit or anything like that. It's just that I didn't see any draw to it anymore. And he persisted a little bit, and then, I, then he dropped it. And I happened to be talking to uh, my physician regarding some stress issues I was having. And he said, you know, you should really find something that you used to do that you really enjoyed mm. and do that again. And I said, well, there's nothing. I'm sort of doing model railroads, and, and that's that's enough for me right now. Um, and then, of course, my, my friend showed up in the next cycle of contacts and said, hey, we're having a we're having a day down here. We're having a games day. We're going to do two four-hour game sessions, uh, one-shots. You should come down and play. I said, I haven't played in, oh, man, I haven't played in years and years and years. He said, oh, come on. I'll lend you some dice if you can't find yours. Well, dear me, didn't that turn out to be uh, swallowing it hook, line, and sinker all over again? So the same guy who got me into it in 1980 brought me back in in 2015, mm. and I have enjoyed every game session since then as much or more than I did back in the day. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's uh, my developing a better understanding of mechanics or uh, having a better appreciation for the work that goes into these games or uh, finding a more sophisticated level of escapism in some of the new newer titles. Uh, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I've played so many new rule sets that I had never dreamed of at the time, uh, back, back way back in the, in the old days. And I'm looking forward to even more as, as we proceed. I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting the posting of the choices for the next game day, which is coming up in a little over a week and uh i don't know what the offerings are going to be but uh, they've been tremendous so far and old school titles like the old school renaissance which are games like uh, lamentations of flame princess swords and wizardry blood mm. and Trigger, dungeon crawl classics uh you know which are very much a flavor of uh of basic or or basic or original D in the mm. in the white box plus revisiting things like heroes unlimited which i could never get anybody to play with me I, <laughs> I don't understand how comics can be so popular yet i can't run into anybody that likes superheroes mm. good grief uh, uh, a very interesting palladium uh title called uh the advanced recon which mm. is which is not any it's they purchased it from someone else and published it and it's not their same same rule set that everybody would be familiar with from either the FRP or Heroes Unlimited or Rifts or something like mm. that. Uh, and it's Vietnam War era. I've played it twice. The The GM that's done it has been very engaging. It's terrific, terrific system. Uh, very deadly. Mm. Like the actual war itself. Well, you know, I, a, as you're playing a fantasy game or, you know, you're playing any of these uh, uh, role-playing games, the idea for most of them is that you're the hero. You're the most important person in the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the NPCs and the monsters and the, the uh, antagonists that you run into 
are not going to be able to take you down in one shot. Mm. And games like Recon, uh, Traveler, to some extent, you can be one-shotted pretty easily. Call of Cthulhu, which, although is probably one of the most popular games, game genres or uh, mythos that's that's out there because it appears in in virtually every other game system as a as an addenda to it. You you don't engage in combat with anything because you're just going to die. Mm. If you're lucky, if you're not lucky, you're going to go horribly insane and then die. Mm. And the the, the nihilistic um, approach to that and the 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 idea that no matter what you do doesn't ma- doesn't have any effect on the outcome it just turns me off. I, I've only played I've only played one game of that's had a Call of Cthulhu basis that I've really enjoyed and it was so tremendous. I would watch a movie of how that game played out on the table. Mm-hmm. I pay to watch the movie. I'd buy the DVD of the <laughs> movie that was based on what we played on the table. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. But that was all down to the GM and not to the rules themselves. Certainly. Yeah, and I think that's really an important point. I did want to offer the lost story because I think what I find with people, particularly who have rediscovered role-playing in some form, is the lost story is really important. It also occasionally occurs for model railroaders as well. But for me, the lost story occurred slightly earlier when I was about 17. My mother was leaving for Malaysia. I was having to pack everything down. And I gave everything I owned to my then girlfriend's brother, including a squat army that I had spent years mowing lawns and saved up and finally purchased these little space dwarves, all the original books. I have a small tin of miniatures that I purchased after this situation but of course the girl was cheating on me everything went terribly terribly wrong and the brother walked off quite handsomely with this large prize but at the time it was very much a kind of as you say this is my prior life I had a friend who was absolutely obsessed with Games Workshop he went to work for Games Workshop soon after uh, this experience but as a teenager seeing now probably people who were younger than me but men in their 30s playing war games and just behaving really badly. I had already had a slightly bad taste in my mouth. But, yeah, I moved away from it very much. And it was when I went to the UK, which really I didn't have that much time off because I then went to the UK and within a year of being in the UK, so I was in my early 20s, I picked up a white dwarf. And I hadn't read white dwarf for probably about five years. Yes, a really remarkable um, absence in this thing. And immediately started corresponding with like childhood sculptors and things like people that I found really fascinating and then developed all these curious things but actually playing the games I had a friend who stayed with me briefly and we did play some 140,000 visit prior to him coming and completely ruining the friendship but aside from that it was through playing it at work and having a co-worker who initially said I've never played D&D but I'd love to play. I haven't played D&D for 20-plus years. But mm-hmm. the necessity of setting up a game for this fellow and what you describe associated with taking the moon and applying water to it, I had done with computer simulation. There was a book put out by Osborne. In fact, I'm going to put it in the feed of the podcast because it's now in the public domain called Write Your Own Fantasy Computer Games. Oh, my. was an apex of D&D role-playing on one side and computers on the other side. And that basically constructed my life up until the present day. Because for me, computer simulation was role-playing when I didn't have people to play with. 
It was an ability. You talk about, you know, having a weather system. <laughs> That's Noble Ape, right? Noble Ape has a weather system. So all yes. these elements in role-playing move very quickly into computers for me. But the narrative component, which I really loved, I was, from a relatively young age, although I played a few games, I was my friendship group's GM to the point where if the teacher didn't show up, we'd just pick up the game. <laughs> you know, there would be all these scenarios and even, and I probably played into probably up until this point where I gave away all my stuff to this, you know, uh, girl's brother. Um, mm. That was my life. And certainly the D&D systems, the Warhammer fantasy role play, which you didn't mention, but was big because we had, you know, Warhammer people who liked the Citadel stuff. So, but also writing my own rule sets. I found books from when I was 11, like an early rule set that I wrote when I was 11. I have a couple more in the attic from when I was like 12 or 13. Certainly after the RuneQuest um, <laughs> intervention, I started writing my own RuneQuest-like set of rules. The cost of buying these things for me, particularly in Australia, was very high. Oh, yeah. Um, so I writing rules for me and creating universes and it's interesting here you talk about the weather system and the, the hierarchy of the guards and all the kind of political elements. And that, for me as a small child, was just absolutely fascinating that you could construct the hierarchy of cultures and a variety of different things and really deeply explore you know, existing cultural sets and what you do if you just perturb that a little bit. But we, we have limited time, unfortunately, this evening, Chris. I, I know you were joking before we started recording that there's no way I was going to keep a time limit to this conversation. But I wanted to talk a little bit about nurturing through role-playing gaming because that's something that you touched on briefly could you talk a little bit about the the nurturing nature of role-playing for you if this was a difficult thing to consider when you when you sort of broached it the social the face-to-face -face social interaction of role-playing was so critical to me as a young teenager i i wasn't particularly uh outgoing uh, you know, gangly, awkward, whatever, you, you name it. Mm. And to, to be brought into a group of my peers and have an equal say in what was going on and have, uh, it seems strange to say it, but to have reasoned deep discussions uh, about something you believed in passionately with, an, with a group of your peers was so important to developing the ability to, to speak and present your point of view and negotiate with other people uh what you wanted in a situation and learn the art of compromise mm. and without role playing i there was nothing else i was involved in that had any of those aspects uh that that would be brought to the fore in in my case so without role playing i wouldn't have gotten those the impetus to, to actually make something of myself i suppose mm -hmm. is, is a way to put it and we really enjoyed each other's company. We really enjoyed the challenge of learning the game. And I don't mean just the, the ins and outs of the, the situations you're going to find yourself in, but the mechanics and the reasoning behind what was going on in the game and stretching the, the concept of, of well, how do, how, do we, how are we going to represent the following situation using the game mechanics? How are we going to then overcome the situation using the game mechanics? And from a, that, just as the player perspective there, as the GM, you have to sit down and develop a coherent uh, situation for people to want to spend their time in. You can't just 
you, you can't be adversarial. You can't be you can't be petty. You can't be uh, short tempered. You have to work through all these different situations with the group that you're you're agreeing to spend your time with. They're not paying you anything. You're not gaining anything out of it other than the the sense of accomplishment that you you receive from um, passing through a um, a good story. A good story. Mm-hmm. You're reaching the the point of uh, conclusion. You're you're overcoming the obstacles. You're uh, succeeding. You're you're Jason uh, and your Argonauts. You're uh, Odysseus. You're uh, you know, pick any modern hero, you know, whether group or solo, you're the A team for crying out loud. Mm. Um, and you, you, at the end of the day, you've solved the problem and you've come away from it with some sense of, uh, achievement and accomplishment. And that's role playing is, is all that and more. I, I can, I can recall the days I spent in the school library studying astronomical charts so that I could figure out a puzzle that that the 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 fellow that brought me into the game he was our best GM he would set puzzles for us <laughs> I swear there was a a globe in in one of the rooms that instead of being a a map of the Earth or a map of the Moon or some celestial body it was um it was the heavens picked out in jewels mm. and. The jewels had articulations to them and different colorations, and they were all the constellations. And you had to, if you didn't manipulate it in the correct manner, you were going to not achieve the next level in the in the game, the next the next uh, unlock, the next pass. And I spent, I swear, three days in the library at school studying the stellar charts and trying to f- decode his uh, his conundrum and solve it. And I wouldn't have done that for anything else. There's no way I'm going to spend three days in the library looking at star charts for any other reason. The vocabulary builder, I'm at a loss here because it's just so much. Learning to do all the calculations in your head on the fly very quickly. Mm. Learning to make probability uh, judgments very, very quickly based on whether you're using a bell curve or flat probability or two dice to give you a peak. I mean, you're, you've got to make your decisions how you're going to min-max the situation. You're doing this all really quickly because you've got a limited scope of, of opportunity and a limited time in your lunch hour to, to actually achieve anything. And there was a, a, a pressure to do better that had nothing to do with uh, getting a mark at the end of the, the semester and everything to do with uh, doing a little bit better today than you did yesterday. And, and leveling up, if you want to put it that way. I don't know if that's nurturing per se, but that certainly were the thing. Those were the things that I took away from uh, from my examination of how it affected my life. Looking back at it many years later, you know, in, in uh, having a reflection, a few days of reflection on it. Well, I am a cruel games master and I want to leave the listeners wanting more. I think in our next discussion... You used this metaphor, which I had forgotten existed, primarily because robbing hobos is, you know, the kind of stuff that is, is bread and butter for new, you know, new gaming folk. But actually, people tend to sway away from over time. So in our next discussion, which may be as close as next Thursday evening, I'd like to explore some of those ideas and the change that you felt through gaming in recent years. But Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, taking up my 
you you built a prior podcast for me. I can see you building this podcast as well. So I just want to thank you in advance uh, for all your efforts here. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you in the future so we can explore some of these other topics. Thank you very much, Chris. My pleasure, Tom.